Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chronicles of Curiosity. My name is Katie. And I'm Mason. This week, we're diving into part two of our John Wayne Gacy series. We hope you enjoyed part one, and if you haven't already listened to it, do that before you continue with this episode. Otherwise, we're just going to be diving right in with the dark and nasty stuff without any background. So in order to properly lay the groundwork, part one is recommended first. But before we get into this, anything you've been curious about this week? Yes. So I have been listening to a new podcast series um, and similar to the to the Dolly Parton series, Dolly Parton's oh, America. Yeah. This is a short form podcast series. So I think it's six or seven episodes. I'm on episode five. Uh, it's called 1619. And it's it follows the story of the first enslaved people coming from oh, Africa man. and landing in Virginia. And the first episode kind of goes through the history, you know, the history that we're all taught in school, the Civil War, Civil Rights Movement, Reconstruction Era, you know, and but the following episodes really go in depth with different aspects of enslaved people culture. Um, so, for instance, the episode that I just listened to, I think it was episode four, talked about how enslaved people, the music that they created was kind of the foundation for American pop culture and American music in general. And the example that the host used was a lot of music from like the sixties and seventies where there was a lot of soul and, and R and B aspects and and things like that. Um, And then he gave examples like all the way up to present day. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a really interesting series. Um, I would recommend anyone listen to it. If you want to, you know, gain more insight into that terrible portion of American history, it's not an easy listen. Like it really is not. It is, heartbreaking to listen to but i think it's important because i don't think you should shy away from that sort of thing um it is a genuine part of the history of the country yeah i think it'd be interesting you said it's called 1619 yeah it's uh from the new york times and don't let that put you off for any reason because it's you know it's completely unbiased it's um done by a couple of journalists who i believe were out of the university of notre dame Mm, okay and um, it's fantastic. It's really well written. I, I almost want to say, and I, don't quote me on this, but I want to say that it was based off of a novel or a book that came out a few years ago. Um, but I'm not, not 100% sure about that. Okay. But I would recommend it. And especially, I mean, we grew up in New York where that type of thing was discussed and it was taught in history class. But it, what, we didn't have any firsthand accounts of of that aspect of american history yeah and now we are living in the south and we do have confederate monuments in different places and and you know different historic sites and things and it it definitely makes it feel much more real so i just wanted to gain some insight on um, that part of history and that podcast series is a great way to start yeah i like it that sounds that sounds really uh informative yeah in a good way like it's it's i mean obviously not a lot of the history of this country is not pretty. Right. Um, but I think a lot of times, at least in my experience in history class, a lot of the dark stuff was kind of glazed over or just yeah. fully not taught. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think our it's kind of our responsibility to fill in those gaps if we are curious or if we want to. Um, so I think that's a good, that's a good way to do that because – there's gaps of the things that we weren't taught that are truly a part of this country's history. 
Right. So. Yeah. Hmm. So that is my recommendation. It's a little bit of a downer, but is there anything you've been curious about this week? So mine is a pretty strong 180 from that. Um, (laughs) So this week, so this is my first week at my new job. And uh, one of my coworkers and I started talking about um, funny pet names. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not talking about funny like Goober or Waffles, which those are good. Those are I have nothing against those names. But I'm talking like you know you know those posts. I've been seeing them on TikTok a lot recently. From I think it's from like screenshots from like Pet Finder. Yeah. Where people have chosen the most unhinged <laughs> names for their pets. Mason and I love these. It makes me laugh every time I yeah. see them. It yeah. really does. Every time either one of us comes across one of those posts, we send it to one another because. It just makes us chuckle every time. So my coworker and I were looking at some of these posts when we had some downtime. And uh, I would like to share a couple of my favorite name <laughs> suggestions. Okay, let's hear them. One is the, – the first one is actually uh, a personal suggestion that I came up with that I would love to use in the future as a name for a future dog or cat. So don't steal it is what you're saying. They can steal it if they want. It's a pretty common thing. And that name is Spoon. Spoon. Is that, is that a common dog name? No. Pet, pet That's name? the whole point. Spoon. Spoon. Yeah. It's kind of cute. I feel like it's one of those things that you would, when you first name your pet that, you'd be like, why am I calling this dog Spoon or Cat Spoon? Mm-hmm. But then after six months, yeah, when you wouldn't- Yeah, when you turned it into nicknames. Yeah. And, and you wouldn't associate it with like the eating utensil. Yeah. It would just be your pet. That's- but you know what I think would be funny is if- like if I'm making dinner, or you're making dinner, and one of us is like, "Can you hand me a spoon?" and the dog comes running, <laughs> and we're like, "Oh, uh, not sorry, not, you. Yeah, not um, you, just the the utensil." Yeah, I feel like that'd be kind of funny. Yeah, that would be funny. Some other suggestions that I cannot take credit for are heavy machinery. <laughs> okay, which made me Wh- laugh so fucking hard. Heavy machinery is a heavy machinery is an cat, right? Yes, it's okay. a big chonker of a cat, <laughs> and it that cat it did look like. Um, it should be called the heavy machinery. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other, the last suggestion I have was uh, um, two kittens. They were presumably siblings and they were called felony and a misdemeanor. <laughs> and I thought that was so cute. That is cute because you just, it's automatically built in that you named the worst behaving one felony. <laughs> but what if it was like the sweetest, most loving cat in the world and it was named felony? What if you named your cat that was just an absolute ball of love uh like double homicide or something that was actually one of the other suggestions was double homicide Uh, was it really i think so yeah that's funny yeah Yeah. we should be and okay so what i'm assuming happens is uh, this is on pet finder so these all these pets are up for adoption people probably find animals and uh take them to local shelters Uh or they they put them up for adoption and they're like i don't want to get attached to this animal so i'm just going to name it the first thing that i see this is cup yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, I was also thinking like stapler, uh, mechanical pencil, plant. Like there, I don't, I just, it's so fun to me. Like to me, that is more, gives more personality than a name like Sherman. Yeah. You know, I don't know why, but I, I love it. Or Jack. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like uh, it's more, do you feel like it's more acceptable to give a name like that to a cat than to a dog and i do and and just because dogs actually respond to their names mm-hmm. cats i believe cats understand their names but they don't they just don't care yeah i think for some reason i do kind of associate names like that more with cats than with dogs because i do i do think a lot of times dogs tend to have a bit more personality 
I don't know. I mean, cats have personality too, but cats are a lot more independent in my experience. And uh, they they kind of just don't. They do their own thing. They don't need a name. They cats don't, don't need yeah, a name. Yeah, and they don't need us. Yeah. They, we're just here for entertainment probably. Yeah. I read a post this morning that was talking about um, how cats just think we are uh, giant, clumsy, hairless babies. Yeah, yeah. Like they think we're cats too. And a lot of times, like, they meow at us because they also meow at kittens because your ears aren't developed to hear, like, yep. the other, like, squeaky noises that cats make. Yep. So they have to meow really loud because they just think we're just stupid and can't hear them. I've also heard that when cats lick you, they're actually just, I mean, they're they're just exhibiting grooming behaviors mm-hmm, for a kitten. Mm-hmm. Like Trying to, like, would, clean yeah. you. Yeah. Because we're dumb and we don't know how to clean ourselves, but except for the fact that we shower and they just don't understand that. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Their intentions are good. Their intentions are good. It's very cute if you think about it that way. Yeah. Um, oh, also, real fast, I just want to thank all of you for your support, um, especially as we were transitioning into the new location and getting settled in Charlotte. Thank you, and we love you. Um, all right. You ready? I'm ready. Let's get into it. And part just two. part two. And just a warning, this episode is gonna have moments of graphic and violent content. I try to keep most of it relatively surface level because even I'm not entirely comfortable uh detailing every single thing that was done to the victims. Um but there is still I mean, there's there's murder. A lot of it. So there's your warning. So here's where we left off, just to recap. John Wayne Gacy has been working hard as Pogo the Clown, Patches the Clown, and as the head of PDM Contractors, where he seems to primarily employ young men and high school students, which feels like a little bit of a red flag to me. But if you think about it, he's working in construction, yeah. so that kind of makes sense. Yeah, that wouldn't be something that would be a red flag. Right, me. and it's only a red flag because we know that he's a sick motherfucker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I've chosen to break down this episode in a timeline format. I found it was the easiest way to kind of separate everything Gacy was doing throughout the 70s. So it's possible I'll repeat a thing or two from part one, but just consider it a refresher or just another kind of piece to the puzzle to help kind of uh, elaborate on what was going on. So in 1971, Gacy and his mother moved into the house at 8213 West Somerdale Avenue in Norwood Park Township, just outside of Chicago. Then January 3rd, 1972, Gacy attended a family party on the evening of January 2nd, and then in the wee hours of the morning, he went to the Civic Center in downtown Chicago to look at a display of ice sculptures. Why he went in the middle of the fucking night, I don't know. Yeah, that's really strange. I wonder if it was a New Year celebration. It's possible. Like yeah. The town was, yeah, maybe the ice sculptures yeah. were part of that, and he just hadn't had the chance to go. I don't know. Even in our hometown, they used to do, I think it was... Either the night of or um, the the first of January, they used to do like an all night or close to all night event where they would have oh, shows and yeah, things. Like so downtown. I wonder if it's something like that. Maybe neither here nor there. Um, anyway, but it was it was there that he found sixteen year old Timothy McCoy at the Greyhound bus terminal in Chicago, and he lured the boy into his vehicle. The young man was headed to Omaha, Nebraska, to visit his father, but he had time to explore before his next bus left at noon later that day. And remember, it was like the middle of the night, so he had some time probably had a good 12 hours to go um gacy took timothy on a tour of chicago to do some sightseeing then took him back to the gacy home to hang out for the rest of the night and morning before he had to catch his bus according to gacy he woke up early the next morning or i guess later that morning technically um, to find timothy standing in his bedroom doorway holding a knife he quickly got out of bed and when mccoy raised his arms to defend himself from the large man charging at him unexpectedly he accidentally cut gacy's arm 
At this point, Gacy is fully under the impression Timothy is trying to kill him. Uh, Gacy was able to get the knife from McCoy, banged the young boy's head against the wall of the bedroom, and kicked him against the wardrobe. Timothy managed to kick Gacy in the stomach, causing him to double over, but Gacy then grabbed Timothy, wrestled him to the floor, and stabbed him in the chest repeatedly. The story Gacy told was that he left Timothy in the bedroom to die, went and washed the knife off in his bathroom, then went to the kitchen where he saw Timothy had made breakfast and set the table for two. He believed Timothy had simply gone into the bedroom to wake Gacy up and had just happened to have the knife in his hand. He didn't really seem to have any ill intent in the situation. He just was holding it because he was cooking. Um, But whether or not that was the true story, it's the only story we know about Timothy McCoy. Gacy buried the young man in the crawl space beneath the floors of his home and later covered the grave with a layer of concrete. So Timothy made breakfast for both of them, presumably, maybe as like a thank you. Mm -hmm. That's a weird thing anyway, if you're in a stranger's house and you take it upon yourself to make breakfast. I guess so, yeah. Um, But also, this is Gacy telling this story. This is pretty incriminating of him to admit that he realized his mistake. I would say kind of, but he... It very much shows, I don't want to say shows, it gives the impression of self-defense, misguided self-defense. Right. But, right. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I follow. This is, okay, uh, hear me out here. This seems like a master plan where you admit to doing one thing wrong to make it seem like the other things that you did weren't quite as bad. So it's like, yeah, I, I killed this guy because I was in self-defense, but I didn't do these other things. This is a very smart tactic for a liar to use. Mm, mm, yeah. Where you admit guilt on one end um, for something that's not as serious as the other things you're mm-hmm. being accused of. And that does come up more than one time. Yeah. So in this story specifically. So a little sidebar. Um, in an interview years later, Gacy said that immediately after killing McCoy, he felt, quote, totally drained. Yet he noted that as he stabbed McCoy and as he listened to the, quote, gurgulations, which isn't a real word, but it's the word that he chose to use regarding the noises that Timothy made as he died. Yeah, it's, it's a word now. Yeah, the uh, gurgulations and gasping. He had experienced a mind-numbing orgasm. Okay. He added, quote, that's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill, end quote. Which, if you're someone that tends to take in a lot of content regarding serial killers and just crime content in general, you may know that there are many different categories that serial killers can be sorted into. A couple examples examples are visionary killers, meaning they're driven by hallucinations or delusions. Mission-oriented killers, meaning they believe they're eliminating a certain group of people they consider to be undesirable or morally wrong. Uh, They often see themselves as cleaning society which is kind of fucked up and then the last one which is where gacy falls is lust killers these sick motherfuckers obtain sexual pleasure from the violence they commit and they are almost exclusively male correct that i don't know i would not say so i don't want to generalize and that i'm not sure but on july 1st 1972 john wayne gacy marries carol hoff She and her daughters are already living in his home and have done so since their engagement in August of 1971. Carol did complain about a rancid smell coming from beneath the home, and her mother did as well, actually, said it smelled like dead rats. Um, But Gacy blamed it on the runoff from a sewer pipe. And that is when he spread lime and concrete in the crawl space to try and cover up the smell of young Timothy McCoy's decaying body, which he had placed there back in January of that same year. January 1974. 
According to Gacy, the second murder he committed was sometime in January of 1974, but the victim remains unidentified to this day. All we know is that Gacy strangled this person, then placed them in, the in his closet until he took care of the body. Later on, Gacy stated that various bodily fluids had leaked from the victim's mouth and nose, which stained the carpet in his closet, which is really very unfortunate for the very, carpet in his closet. Yeah, I mean, you know how expensive carpet cleaning is. It really, it's just, started. my goodness. After learning this would happen after death, Gacy began stuffing rags, socks, or even the victim's own underwear into their mouths to prevent further staining of his precious carpeting. On July 31st, 1975, so we've skipped ahead, last one was in January 1974, and then he took a, took a little break. So July 31st, 1975, one of Gacy's PDM employees disappeared. John Butkovich was 18 years old, and on July 30th, he confronted Gacy over some money that Gacy still owed the, owed the young man for work. The story Gacy gave police was that John Butkovich and two friends had arrived at Gacy's home demanding pay, but they had reached some kind of compromise and the young men had left. What actually happened was that Butkovich approached Gacy saying, I want to talk to you. Then Gacy invited the young man into his car, took him back to the Gacy's home to further discuss. Now, Gacy had this little trick that you'll hear about multiple times throughout this episode. And in this trick, he would handcuff himself behind his back and release the cuffs with a hidden key. His victims didn't know about the hidden key, which just made it look like a trick pair of handcuffs that they could get out of with no problem. He managed to convince a number of people to put these handcuffs on, John Butkovich being one of them. So Gacy handcuffed Butkovich, sat on his chest for a while, then strangled him. He buried Butkovich's body in the floor of an extension of his garage underneath a layer of concrete, with Carol and her daughters just inside the house. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Now, the garage was a separate building, but, like, they're right fucking there. And, yeah, yeah. And they have no, I mean, you know, presumably they have no idea that any of this was going no, on. No, no, they have no idea. Yeah, I, I read that um, he had just put Butkovich in the, his body in the garage for, like, a moment um, and wasn't expecting Carol and the girls to be home so soon, but they came home early. So instead of burying him possibly in the crawl space, like he may have intended, he was buried underneath the garage floor. And, um, I'm pretty sure he had dug, the, he had already had a space dug up there. He was planning to do something drainage wise, mm, Sure, but, um, the space was utilized otherwise. Yeah. Um, so we're skipping ahead to 1976. Uh, March 2nd, Gacy and Carol Hoff would divorce after four years of marriage. Carol had stated that Gacy previously told her he was bisexual, which didn't seem to bother her, but she became unnerved when Gacy began frequently bringing home pictures of naked men. She had also found multiple wallets and identification belonging to various young men, which Gacy could not explain to her. So he seemed to kind of just escalate and become physical during arguments and... He just blew up. He also seemed to become a little bit complacent, too. Like, you don't have a backstory as to how you got these wallets and these photos. He may have. He was an arrogant son of a bitch, so he may have just, like, made up random shit. But ultimately, you can't explain that without confessing. Right. So I can guarantee he didn't do that. And he was becoming physical. He was, like, throwing things. And, and she was like, all right, I'm done. I've had enough. So she filed for divorce. Just one month after Gacy's divorce from Carol Hoff was finalized, he abducted and murdered Daryl Sampson. He was 18 years old. Daryl was buried underneath the dining room of Gacy's home. May 14th, Randall Reffitt disappeared shortly after arriving home from a dental appointment. He was 15 years old. Oh. Later that same day, investigators believe, 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton disappeared while walking home from his sister's apartment. 
actually Samuel and Randall Raffet were close acquaintances and were buried together in the crawl space. Wow. What are the chances? Yeah. Uh, June 3rd, 14-year-old Michael Bonin disappeared while, tra- while traveling from Chicago to Waukegan, Illinois. Gacy had strangled Bonin and buried him underneath the spare bedroom of his home. June 13th, Gacy took the life of 16-year-old William Carroll and buried him in the crawl space beneath the house. I mean, this, I, I know you're still going, but this, uh, the speed of these mm-hmm. is unreal. Yeah, yeah, so just to, uh, yeah, so May 14th, Randall Raffitt, that same day, Samuel Stapleton. Um, less than a month later, June 3rd, Michael Bonin. Ten days later, William Carroll. And then a few months later, James Hackinson. This is what's known as ramping up yeah. in yeah. true crime or going berserker mode as well. Yes. And I kind of, a part of me believes that it's like after the divorce, he kind of had the freedom. Yeah. Um, he referred to this as his cruising era where he would just kind of go around and look for boys to, that's why so many of these boys just disappeared like while walking home from places or traveling or they just were gone. Just swept up off the street. Exactly. Exactly. So August 5th, James Hackinson, a 16 year old boy from Minnesota spoke to his family on the phone, quite possibly from Gacy's home. James died of suffocation and was buried in the crawl space. August 6th, the next day, Mm. 17-year-old Rick Johnston was last seen alive. He was found buried next to James Hackinson. Victims 11 and 12, if you haven't been keeping track, we're at 11 and 12 now. In in five minutes, we're at 11 and yeah, 12. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Victims 11 and 12 are still unidentified to this day, but are believed to have been murdered in the summer of 1976. Uh, one challenge investigators did have while uncovering and identifying the bodies of the victims was that so many bodies had been crammed into this tight space that they had begun to meld together, which meant that many of the bodies were removed in parts and had to be identified and later put together for identification. Many victims weren't identified until two years after they had been removed from the crawl space. Mm. I'm glad I Isn't haven't had na- breakfast yet. I have, and that is nasty. A, uh, yeah, just a... Uh, is that where the term melting pot comes from? I sure should hope not. <laughs> I really don't think so. Um, victims 13 and 14 are also unidentified, but are believed to have been killed between August and October of 76. Victims 15 and 16. On October 24th, friends Kenneth Parker, age 16, and Michael Marino, age 14, were abducted and killed. On October 26th, two days later, William Bundy disappeared after telling his family he was going to a party. He was 19 years old, and he may have been an employee of PDM Contractors. I'm assuming PDM contractors is at this point is probably paying people under the table. It's not like they're on unofficial payroll or employee. I actually, I'm not sure. There's probably some, yeah, some regulars, but man, what a, what a weird time. Like I, I can't help but think the current employees of, of the construction company have to be kind of looking the other way every day. Yeah. When people show up, like, I'm sure he has excuses, you know, they didn't work out, I had to fire him, or they quit, they couldn't handle the the the, the workload, yeah. things like that. But And I think a lot of the times, they had multiple projects going on, so it wasn't everyone in the same area together. Oh, yeah, that makes um, sense. Yeah, so I think... They were kind of split up. Right, so yeah. I don't think there was ever, like, business Christmas parties where everyone met all at once, say, or, yeah. you know... There's, yeah. no, uh, there's no team building yeah, retreats no. here. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Sometime between November and December of 76, 21-year-old Francis Alexander was murdered and buried beneath Gacy's office. 
He had spoken on the phone with his mother at some point in November, but his family was unaware of his disappearance and death as they simply believed they had just lost contact and Francis had moved to California. It's that time of the, I almost said that time of the year, but it's that time in history too where people could just disappear. Right, right. And it was completely unintentional and family just assumed, hey, we'll touch base at some point. Yeah. In December, 17-year-old Gregory Godzik, another PDM employee, disappeared. He had been working for Gacy for less than three weeks. Godzik's girlfriend had last seen him outside of her home after dropping her off from a date. Gregory had told his family that his new boss had him, quote, dig trenches for some kind of drain tiles, end quote, in the crawl space of Gacy's home. I think it's safe to assume they were to clear out more graves for future victims, and it's a possibility Gregory Godzik dug his own grave. Wow, that's dark. That's yeah. incredibly dark. Yeah. Um, if you haven't been counting, Gacy committed 16 known murders in the year 1976. Wow. And that's a lot. Yeah, that's a that's, lot. I mean, one is a lot. One is too many. I mean, that's more 16? than one a month. That's mm-hmm. unreal. And some, yeah. you know, like we already talked about, some were in the same day. Same day or like two days apart. Like, what the fuck, dude? Yeah. So 1977, January 20th, Gacy lured John Zick into his house after discussing John Zick perching purchasing Gacy's Plymouth Satellite, which is a classic-looking car. It's really pretty nice. Gacy later strangled Zick in the spare bedroom, which wasn't really nice. Yeah. I didn't need to say that, yeah. but it just goes <laughs> Thanks about, for the clarification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Car nice. Strangled bad. not. March 15th, 20-year-old John Prestige disappeared. He was last seen leaving a restaurant near the north side of Chicago. Prior to his disappearance, he had mentioned starting with a local contractor. He would later be found buried above the body of Francis Alexander. So one thing that I haven't mentioned but has come up or came up a lot in my research, rather, many, if not most, if not all, I would say, of these young men had previously mentioned whether to roommates, to friends, to family members, that they were going to be starting work with a contractor or they had started work or something like that. So it's not like these random folks are just disappearing. And also, well, I'll elaborate later, but... I'm sure you'll get into the investigation and oh, yeah. probably the incompetence. Yeah. I yeah. mean, 16 people go missing in one year. Yeah. Um, and nobody... And nobody is really... And these aren't... Okay, so typically when you're looking at serial killers who are committing this cadence, like this amount... This level of... of... murder. Yeah. Um, typically, they are murdering... Uh, sex workers, traveler, loan travelers, that sort of thing. Yeah, people that aren't going to be quite as noticeable if yeah. they're missed. Yeah, people that are f- kind of flying under the radar. Right. 14-year-old boy from Chicago, probably going to be on the radar of, of some people. I would think. You would hope. I would hope, yeah. yeah. Victim number 22 is a still unidentified young man buried sometime in the spring of 77. July 5th, 19-year-old 19-year-old Matthew Bowman was killed. September 15th, 18-year-old Robert Gilroy was seen for the last time before his murder. He was the son of a Chicago police department, or police sergeant, yeah. excuse me, who lived four blocks away from Gacy's house. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is yeah. what I'm, yeah. 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 And he was also buried in the crawl space. This is like, well, I almost asked if you'd seen this, but we watched it together, The Black Phone. Oh, I I like the movie, but it, it kind of brings me back to this a little bit. I know it's not based off of Gacy, really, as uh, to my knowledge, but where someone could go missing and the community is up in arms, but you're really not any closer to finding the killer. Right, right. 
Yeah. September 25th, 19-year-old former Marine John Mowry disappeared after leaving his mother's home. Gacy strangled Mowry and buried him beneath the master bedroom. October 17th, 21-year-old Russell Nelson had last been seen outside a bar in Chicago before his disappearance. November 10th, 16-year-old Robert Winch was murdered and buried in the crawl space. November 18th, Tommy Bowling disappeared after leaving a Chicago bar. He was 20 years old. December 9th, 19-year-old David Talisman disappeared. He had told his mother he was attending a concert in Hammond, Indiana. He had been strangled with a ligature and buried in the crawl space. What is a ligature? Um, piece of rope that's like tied oh. a certain way. Okay. I think that's my understanding of. Now, like I said, a lot of these young men had mentioned in the weeks prior to their disappearances that they had been approached and offered work with a contractor just outside of Chicago. And connected to that, all of their bodies were found beneath the Gacy home. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So that is how we know that they didn't just disappear and it was like planted on Gacy. Right. There's clear evidence that he was responsible. December 30th. Now, if you weren't keeping track, he did take a break for Christmas. Oh, good, good, um, good. Yes, December 9th was uh, David Talisma, and then nothing until December 30th. So, uh, he good took, to know he's taking yeah. uh, priorities. I mean, you got Christmas shopping. You got to decorate the tree. Right, right. It's a, it's a lot. Right. It's a lot right. going on. You got to wrap the presents. Ugh. Yeah, there's so much to do. Um, Just a sidebar, we are being so aggressively sarcastic. Of course, yeah. Um, and if you're not picking up on that, I just wanted to say that because we are not complete assholes. So I just wanted to say we are being very sarcastic because obviously this is so fucked up. This is the only way that I know how to cope. Same. Yeah. Uh, so December 30th, 19-year-old Robert Donnelly was abducted from a Chicago bus stop at gunpoint, which is definitely an escalation as this is the first time we have heard of Gacy abducting someone at gunpoint. That's yeah. an, that's new. Um. Gacy drove Robert to his home, where he raped, tortured, and repeatedly drowned the young man in his bathtub just until he fell unconscious, and then he would, like, pull him back up so he didn't die so that he could continue torturing him. Later on, Donnelly testified that he was in so much pain that he asked Gacy to just kill him. Oh, he survived. Yeah. Gacy replied, quote, I'm getting round to it, end quote. Oof, yikes. Several hours later, Gacy drove Robert to his workplace and released him, warning him not to go to police because they wouldn't believe him. Yeah, I'm going to say they might. Well, 1978. All right. I mean, this was December 30th, so we're just transitioning into 78. Yeah. Of course, Donnelly reported the assault, and when police questioned Gacy, he claimed the two had a, quote, slave sex, end quote, relationship. But everything was consensual. Wrong. Gacy just owed Donnelly money and, quote, didn't pay the kid, end quote, the money Gacy had promised him. He just didn't pay him, supposedly, mm -hmm. from this slave sex relationship that they have. And at this point, the cops are probably like, whoa, okay, yeah, no, 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 you do, you can do whatever you want, just do it behind closed doors. Yeah, the police believed him. Yeah. And that yeah. was the end of that. I don't even know if the police believed him. I, I would say it's more they, just the, the blatant they did. homophobia. No, they did. They did believe him. They believed him. He... I mean, as far as we know, yes. Well, I mean, he's the business owner, you right. know, he's the, yeah. And he was um, pretty well known to be, like, a good dude. Everyone yeah. kind of liked him. and Yeah, so. Um, at this point, the crawl space was at max capacity with around 28 bodies crammed beneath the home. And Gacy had to find new hiding spots for his victims. He says he considered the attic, but worried about leakage issues. Don't want to destroy more of his precious carpet, and this would also be the ceiling and his carpet, so. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. Yeah. 
he decided throwing future victims off of the I-55 bridge into the Des Plaines River would do the trick. Gacy would later state he had thrown five bodies off of the bridge in 1978, one of which he believed landed on a passing barge. Only four of these bodies were found. Wow, the blatant just carelessness here. Mm-hmm. He has no respect he, for he, human life. Well, it, not even that, just the... he. I, do you think at this point he wants to be caught? I mean, he's throwing a body on a barge. Well, I don't think it was on purpose. Why not just wait 30 seconds for the barge mm-hmm. to pass? True. I don't know. I don't know. Mid-June of 1978, Timothy O'Rourke left his apartment to buy cigarettes. He was never seen again. November 4th, which, yes, we did skip ahead a little ways here. He must have taken a break for the summer. Uh, November 4th, 19-year-old Frank Landingen was killed. He was last seen alive by his father walking along Foster Avenue. Eight days later, his naked body was found close to an inlet at the Des Plaines River by some duck hunters. November 24th, Thanksgiving Day, 20-year-old James Mazzara disappeared after having Thanksgiving dinner with his family. Mm. December 11th, Gacy visited the Nissen Pharmacy in Des Plaines to discuss some remodeling with the store owner. While at the pharmacy, 15-year-old Robert Peast overheard Gacy say PDM often hired young men with a starting wage of $5 an hour, which was nearly double what the pharmacy paid. Of course, that was appealing, so right. shortly after Gacy left, when Robert's mother arrived to pick him up from his shift, he asked her to wait, saying, quote, some contractor wants to talk to me about a job, end quote. He left the store at 9 p.m. with intentions to return shortly after. Robert's family grew worried when he did not return as promised and filed a missing persons report with the Des Plaines PD. Lieutenant Joseph Cozenjack had a son that attended the same high school as Robert Peast and decided to look into Gacy a bit further after learning Peast had, inten- had intended to speak to Gacy about a job. He found the prison sentence Gacy had served in Iowa for sodomy, along with the outstanding battery charge, which is the one that we talked about in part one that just got left incomplete because the victim tried to blackmail Gacy. Right. When questioned about Peace's disappearance, Gacy said he had only asked one of the young men working at the pharmacy if there were any remodeling materials behind the store, but was adamant he had not offered anyone a job. Gacy was asked to go down to the station to make a statement, but he could not go at that time as his uncle had just died. Convenient. He said something along the lines of, You're, this is very rude. Don't you have any respect for the dead? <laughs> Which I find so ironic and like painfully it's, ironic. It's ironically hilarious. Yeah. I, I mean, ironic in the worst way. He's saying that as a, a hand is sticking out of his floorboard. Pretty close. Yeah. Oh, yeah. gotta stomp that down. Yuck. Uh, he would later show up at the station at 3.20 in the morning, covered in mud, claiming he had just been in a car accident. Which actually was true. He did indeed get into a car accident. Um, they asked Gacy to come back later as it was 3.20 in the morning and he was wearing a mud suit. Um, he did return later the following day and stuck with his previous statement of never having offered peace to job, but simply asking a young man he didn't know the name of about materials behind the pharmacy building. Anyway, despite his claims, police suspected he was selling them a load of bullshit and suspected he was holding Robert Peast at his home. So they obtained a search warrant on December 13th. The search resulted in a bunch of odd things like multiple police badges, a starter pistol, a syringe and hypodermic needle, handcuffs, several books on homosexuality, pornographic films, an 18-inch dildo, bottles of Valium and atropine, underwear too small for Gacy, multiple driver's license, a class ring with the initials J-A-S, and a Nissan Pharmacy photo receipt in the trash. The Des Plaines PD confiscated Gacy's Oldsmobile and other vehicles used for PDM contracting. 
After examining the Oldsmobile, a clump of fibers were found in the trunk, which investigators believed to be human hair. Three trained search dogs were also used on one of the ve- on the vehicles, specifically to continue the search for Peast. One of the dogs signaled a, quote, death reaction, which he laid down, which is a death reaction by their training. With death reaction meaning that there's a dead individual? It or? indicated that Peast's body had been in the passenger seat of the Oldsmobile uh, at some okay. time. Because okay. that's where they signaled was the passenger seat of the Oldsmobile. Throughout continued throughout the continued investigations of the Des Plaines PD, Gacy became more erratic and unhinged, showing signs of clear stress. He felt like the police were harassing him and following him, but it was because they suspected him of being a bad freaking dude. Yeah. Um, on December twentieth, nineteen seventy eight, Gacy drove to his lawyer's office for a meeting they had scheduled. Gacy seemed anxious and disheveled, and immediately asked for an alcoholic drink. He downed two cupfuls of whiskey then pointed at the copy of the Daily Herald on his lawyer's desk, which had a front-page picture and article talking about the disappearance of Robert Peast, and pointed to it and said, quote, This boy is dead. He's dead. He's in a river. End quote. And that is where we're going to leave you for today's episode. Ooh, cliffhanger. Yes. So we, I've chosen to do three parts for this series just because I wanted to really give it the, the research and the time that I guess it deserves. I don't like saying it, it like that, but it warrants. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to focus on the victims, especially for this episode. And I, when I was going through the research of it, and um, it was hard because, I mean, you see a list, you hear that someone has had 33 victims, and you're like, that's a lot of fucking people. But when you're going through it one name at a time, one story at a time, one age at a time, like it is... There are so many, yeah. and he just was going and go like, oh my! Especially God. when you're considering that each of these people have a family and right. maybe a significant other, right? Yeah, it's it's tough, right? It's really tough. And, and some of them were so young. His so youngest young. victims were 14, yeah, and the oldest was I think 21. So yeah, that's where we're gonna leave you for today's. We will be back next week with part three, where we're concluding the John Wayne Gacy series. We're gonna go a little bit further into the. Uh, discussion that Gacy is having with his lawyer Sam Emeranti and what happens after so thank you for for listening come back next week for a little bit more John Wayne Gacy fucked uppery um have a great week great day great year great whatever part of the day or week you are currently listening in and we will be back with you next week thank you bye bye